Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. The delays that were that were obviously thrown out there to throw me off on my trial schedule and, and, and the choreographing of witnesses, mm-hmm. right? I'm dealing with all of that at once, and it was gamesmanship so they could hide from the truth. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing uh, this beautiful day? I'm good. I'm good, Steve. How are you? Good. I don't know how Atlanta is, but Savannah's been getting some nice weather. It's like in the 70s, so uh, so it's nice to go out for a, a walk where it's not too hot. Yeah, this is our first fake fall in Georgia for, the, for yeah. those who've been living here for a while. This is the first fake fall. We'll have another fake fall, and then it will really be fall. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's how it goes. Well, uh-huh. I am. Uh, I'm excited for our guest today. We got a. Uh, we got a great one. Yes, that's right. We've got Eric Pong on the show today, and there is so much to talk about with this. Um, with this case and about him. Um, so, uh, Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, I'm going to tell our listeners a little bit about you, and then um, we'll get into your case. But for our listeners who aren't familiar with Eric, he's accomplished some very cool stuff, um, including the case that we're going to talk about today. If you want to look him up, you can look him up at ericfonglaw.com. Eric is based in Washington State in Port Orchard, which is outside of uh, Seattle. And I happen to have been to Port Orchard, which is just only cool because I'm so far away from the West Coast, but I loved it there, Eric. And I, everything was a novel to me, including a novelty to me, including like the whole, the fairies and the blackberries growing everywhere. I just had a great time. It's, it's kind of mystical. You know, I grew up in Indiana and, and so to come to a place like this, which we're kind of removed from the city, we're out on the peninsula and right. Yeah. It's just, yeah. It's, it's beautiful. A, yeah. There's, there's so much water, coastline, yeah. trees, mountains canyons, deserts. And of course, you know, Seattle's a world-class city. So. Yeah, it was so awesome. I went with, um, I went for a family thing and my brother was there and we went to the park and he could just not get over the fact that there were like blackberries and stuff growing at everywhere that he could just eat. (laughs) (laughs) He's a bottomless pit when it comes to food. So it worked out well for him. Um, anyway, um, So I've told everybody about where you live, but not much else. Um, Eric is a many time super lawyer from 2011 to the present. He's a top 100 trial lawyer. He's been named trial lawyer of the year by numerous organizations, including the the Washington State um, Trial Lawyers. um, I guess, is it WDTL? No. Yeah. Yeah. And um, the Trial Lawyers College. He's also an instructor for the Trial Lawyers College, um, and he helps out with the Seattle Clemency Project. So he's done over 100 civil and criminal trials, um, and he he takes a creative approach to cases. And we're going to talk about that um, today in the case that we're going to talk about. He has many terrific results, including the one we're going to talk about today, a $91 million verdict, which is the largest compensatory damages verdict for one person um, in Washington state. Um, but I got to ask you before we get into this case, I think, you know what I'm going to ask you. I've I was ask wondering you. when you were going to get there. I saved it for last. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I've got to ask about George Clinton. You've got to tell us about this. Uh, George Clinton, you know, uh, he's just, he's one of those guys. So I know Jerry Spence really well. He's he's a mentor of mine. 
and George Clinton and Jerry Spence. So there's there's a brilliance to these men and a creativity and just like this inner wisdom and voice where you'll just be sitting there and they'll say something that is so profound. you, You don't even know how to react. And so this is George Clinton is a creative genius. He mm-hmm. is an artist that revolutionized. He's the Black Elvis, you know, rap. Right. <laughs> one of the most sampled artists ever. And um, it was a real privilege and honor to represent a, 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 just a force of nature. And it was, it was obviously fun. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was a different time of my life. <laughs> so I, uh, you know. I was talk- it? Was it you? I mean, because you did. It, I mean, it was sort of a copyright issue. Had you been doing a lot of that or was this more about, you know, this was a person that inspired you that you really wanted to dig in to, to work for and with him? What a you know, that's a that's a good question. You know, how does how does someone how does a Port Orchard lawyer, a city of 8000 <laughs> people, you know, end up doing something like that? And. It was somehow he had heard of me. We talked and he liked me and I liked him. And and we went down a collaborative road. I assembled an amazing legal team that had copyright experts that had federal civil procedure experts, which are not my strong suit. And, you know, together we, you know, we, we, we went at it. Yeah. That's awesome. And you won. You won and yeah. made good law. Yeah, it was it was um, <laughs> up through the Ninth Circuit, right? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, let's get into the case we're here to talk about today. I mentioned it's a it's a it was a massive compensatory um, verdict for an individual. But we'll explain about where that verdict came from and how Eric helped the jury um, get to where they needed to be. Um, this was a this is a covid case. So we've had a few, Steve. We've been lucky to talk about a few covid trials now. Um, happening during COVID times. And this is one of them. Um, The case is William Tisdale versus either A-P-R-O-L-L-C or APRO. We'll probably call them APRO. Um, This case was tried in June 2021, but involved an incident that happened in November of 2015. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about what happened and then Eric will just dig in. And and, um, there's especially some some fact specific questions I have for you that that I think would paint a better picture of what happened. Um, But around 11 p.m. on the night of November 4th, 2015, um, William was a customer at an APRO convenience store in um, Park. Washington. And um, unbeknownst at, to William, to Mr. Tisdale, as he's arriving, the clerk who is working in the convenience store, Mr. Baker, is he's working there by himself. So he's the only one who's there. And inside the store, what's happening is that um, he is being threatened by another uh, I, I guess we could call him customer, but he, he wasn't really planning to pay for anything. So maybe he's right. not a customer um, um, named Mr. Sablin. And he had a baseball bat. He had tried to take some cigarettes. There, there was a discussion I want to get a little more into about what he was doing in the store. Um, but he's he's threatening the clerk. He wants these cigarettes. He wants money from the register. Mr. Tisdale does not know this. And so he goes to walk in the store and the clerk tells him, um, tells Mr. Tisdale, Eric's client, to call 911. And and 
I want to get a little cl- more clear on the timing, but at some point during all of this, Mr. Sablin, the 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 um, the guy who's trying to hold up the convenience store, walks outside. So meanwhile, Mr. Tisdale goes outside to call nine one one, and he sees Mr. Sablin, who was previously in the convenience store trying to get money and cigarettes, at his car at Mr. Tisdale's car. And so he confronts Mr. Sablin and Mr. Sablin attacks Mr. Tisdale with the, um, with a bat, giving him horrible injuries that we're going to talk about multiple skull fractures, TBIs, which we've talked about on the show many times, retinal damage. And, and all of this is, is caught on video. And we'll, and we'll talk about what Eric was able to do with that. Um, so obviously after these injuries, Eric helps Mr. Tisdale bringing a case, um, against the convenience store company, the company that owned the convenience store, alleging among other things, failure to have proper security measures and failure to train the clerk, Mr. Baker, um, in those security measures. Uh, so as we mentioned, the case was tried in June, June, 2021 in Pierce County, Washington. And so it involved all the, uh, sort of things we've been talking about in logistically in terms of bringing a case to a jury during COVID. And we'll talk about that. Um, but despite a lot of hurdles and a lot of last minute trial stuff, I was reading the transcript and I didn't get through the whole transcript, but there's a lot of good stuff in there. Um, the jury found in favor of Mr. Tisdale. Um, they found APRO, the, the convenience store company, 90% at fault. Um, they assigned 10% of fault to Mr. Tisdale and they awarded $91 million in total damages, which I sort of, I really wanted to leave that for the end, but I also felt like I had to lead with it because um, it's such a tremendous result. Um I will stop talking now, Eric. There's so much to talk about. But before we get into some of the strategy questions, um, I was reading your opening and I know that you had a video and you were able to do a much better job than I did describing sort of chronologically what the situation was, how Mr. Tisdale got into the situation and what was really going on. Well, what's what's really going on is that convenience stores that are open 24 hours a day are dangerous. And especially convenience stores that are located in certain neighborhoods and areas. And it's a scientific fact that these businesses are going to get robbed and people are going to get hurt. And it's no different than a bar over serving a patron and then giving them the keys and telling them to drive away. That bar has a responsibility to make sure that innocent people out on the roads don't get hurt. And a convenience store that's open 24 hours a day, now it doesn't jump out at you like uh, you know, a bar getting someone drunk and telling them to drive home, but it's identical because there is a scientific correlation between this business because of what they sell. They're open 24 hours a day, you know, alcohol and cigarettes. And then and you, you put them in a neighborhood that is is high crime to begin with, they're easy targets. And because of that, the convenience store, APRO, had an unmitigated duty, a responsibility to address known safety issues. And not only did they not do it, they were, they were almost like, either they were ignorant about it that they were supposed to do it, because it's a state law. Right. To, to say nothing of the fact that just as a good person, as a good business, if you're going to run a shop, let's try and make it safe for the people we're serving. But they were so defiant about it 
that um, it was a it was a dangerous place. Like employees were afraid to work in the store. You know, like it was crazy. It was it was absolutely a dangerous place. One of the things that I liked that you did in the opening uh, is that you, uh, you know, kind of took the jury through sort of the history of convenience stores. And then when they made when there was a decision to go from, as you pointed out, seven seven to eleven, seven in the morning to eleven at night and then go to. I never put that together, by the way. (laughs) Never put that together. I I, I never knew the story of the uh, Southland Ice Company, but uh, that's how seven eleven started. But uh, once they made the decision to go to twenty four hours, they they noticed almost an immediate uptick in crime robberies and people getting injured and the, and the industry itself was basically studying that issue so it, it wasn't like if you owned a 24-hour convenience store and and by the way apro is a very large corporation with uh, convenience stores all up and down the west coast so it's not like this is a mom and pop or this is their only store that they don't know about. But, but if you own a 24 hour convenience store, you know that there is a danger to people that come in there, especially if they come in there late at night uh, when there are, uh, you know, more people out who might be willing to do criminal activities. Yeah. So I'm, I'm sorry, related to that, Eric, cause I think this might also factor into your answer in, in Georgia. Um, you know, if you have something that involves criminal activity, even if you didn't name that person as a defendant, the jury would have the opportunity to allocate um, fault to that criminal defendant on the verdict form. Um, and so I'm hoping as you talk about this, you can also touch on how that how that works in Washington or in this case. Yeah, that's a. I mean, look, that's a. so I focus group this a lot, as you might imagine. And, and for those of you that, you know, listen in a focus group is what Coca-Cola would do to test you know, a, a slogan or an ad or taste products. And, and you learn, you know, kind of the common sense reaction to events. And in my focus group, you know, I found that a lot of people wanted to blame my client because he went up to his car and, 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 and Yvonne, you, you know, you mentioned he confronted the robber. He didn't confront the robber. He went up to a person in his car and said, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. You know, what are you doing? That's not your car. But a lot of people, we want to blame other people when bad things happen to them. And the fact of the matter is, is that what happened to my client was the very danger that the law required them to prevent. And so as, as a lawyer, if you don't focus group these things or if you don't understand the dangers that we face and, and how you frame it, it's, it's, it's a matter of how you explain the story. So if I had started this case out talking about my client, he goes in there and there's someone in his car and he runs up to him and says, what are you doing? The first reaction is going to be, well, what do you think is going to happen if you go up to a stranger right. in your car? A lot of people go there. Now, a lot of people will be like, well, what's wrong with that? Mm-hmm. You have a constitutional right to go defend your car. And frankly, if you don't do that, there's something wrong with you. It, you know, so I knew what the thinking was behind that reaction. But back up. The bottom line is, if I'm talking about my client and his actions, that's not what this case is about. This case is about a convenience store that put him at risk. He, they put their employees at risk. And, 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 and what happened to him is exactly what they knew was going to happen to their customer. customer. And in fact, it, it had happened just a few weeks before this event. And the police had been called there hundreds of times in the years leading up to this. And so... You know, allocation of fault is, of course, going to be an issue that they're going to raise on appeal and say, oh, you know, 
we get to we get to blame all of this on a criminal. How could we have known he was going to do this? Mm-hmm. And unfortunately for APRO, you know, Washington and the definition of responsible parties, I don't even think their lawyers at closing argument understood that in the law in Washington is you do not get to blame an intentional actor if they're not a party and the risk that was presented was the exact risk that the mm-hmm. defendant had a duty to prevent. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that makes sense, right? It, it, you know, if, if there, if, if you have this responsibility, this obligation and this law to do something, and then the thing that this law is designed to prevent happens to just blame it would be awfully uh, circular. It would be be circular. So you go back to the bar that's consistently over-serving its customers so it can make a few extra bucks a night. And then the drunk driver gets in the car and drives and kills a family. You know, should that family, you know, that lost everyone, you, you know, not be entitled for the huge loss that they had simply because a criminal got behind the car drunk and drove? Right. You know, I, so, I, go ahead. No, it's just it, it was an obvious danger point in the case and they offered nothing. So we, I got to go into court and try things out. And, you know, I, I um you know, obviously, you know, did did it all right? Did did a pretty good job. Yeah, um, a, a decent job to come at a ninety-one million dollar verdict. Yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I don't think it was enough. Right, you know, the, the, the loss that this man and what he's living yeah. with, and our valuation of money and APRO—it's a billion-dollar company—and you know, our society's valuations of people. And and just the human worth of what it means to live. We are so ass backwards. And to say that this person isn't worth, you, you know, some dollar amount. I, so, yeah. you know, luckily, I, you know, I wasn't afraid to ask for what I thought truly this man is worth. Because if I had my own issues with money and a lot of people do, it's hard to ask for money. Um, because we carry our own insecurities and guilt and, you, you know, whatever stuff's been layered on us as we grew up. But if I, if I had thought that this man wasn't worth every penny that I had asked for, I would have sold him short because this jury cared for him. They, they obviously felt that, you know, he's a, he's a worthy human being. And, and so. Yeah. Well, that was clear. I mean, cause 91, I mean, that's what you asked for, right. And in your clothes and they gave you every, every penny of that. Yeah. And, and I did not think he was at fault for anything. But I said, but if, but what I, you know, in closing argument, because I knew a lot of people would blame him, you know, if you're going to blame the guy because he went up to his car, 10%, right. You know, 10% for asking someone what they're doing in his car. And they agreed with that too. So, you know, they punished him. They, they attributed fault to him. They reduced the award by, you know, the, the verdict by 10%. Yvonne, uh, you know, that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed completely changed a lot more pajamas involved for me yes yes a lot more working from the computer yes and only getting (laughs) dressed from the uh from the waist up but you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services that's right i mean being good at doing things virtually at doing things through zoom through video conference online it's more important now than ever I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now, 
Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number. They'll highlight them, they'll enlarge them, they'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them and uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services yeah and I mean LTS I'm gonna I'm gonna call them LTS because we're on a first name basis (laughs) you know my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in-person trials one day, or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you, you can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them. Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial techs, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there, but they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life videos. They do settlement documentaries. They do demonstratives and everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. So look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they, I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. I wanted to ask just because you, you did mention how important it is to focus group these issues. When do you start focus grouping and, um, and, and what did you do in this case? What kind of focus group or groups did you do? Yeah. So, I mean, when you start preparing for, so, so when I got this case, my kind of goal in my mind was get past summary judgment massive damages, tough liability case. I, it should be a no brainer to settle for a million bucks. Mm-hmm. Like that was my, like when I got the case and I'm thinking, do I want to do this or not? Cause a lot of lawyers wouldn't take this case. And so when I file a lawsuit, you don't really necessarily get a good feeling whether it's going to go or not. This was, this was not a case I wanted to try because I was obvious. I was obvious to me of the risk in it. When the, but, but so when it became clear, the case wasn't going to settle, which took a little bit of time because they dragged their feet and they, they played a lot of legal games that, you know, we're used to seeing. But when it became really clear that there was just no way they were going to settle, which I would say is a good solid eight months before in the trial day, there was so much uncertainty because of COVID. I would say about eight months before I started going all in, like, you, you know, like, anything I could do to try and understand and respect the other side and, and, and be afraid of their arguments so that I could un- unlock the puzzle. And so I did a number of focus groups with a company called Paramount Focus Group, where we, we got you know 12 people from the community and 
they spend a lot of time understanding the issues and we just focus in on that. And then I also did a focus group with empirical jury, I think a guy by the name of John Campbell, it's mm-hmm. extraordinary what he does, but it's, that's like a 500 person focus group. Yeah. Oh, wow. It's pretty intense. And, yeah. And so there was a, it, it was a lot, it was a lot of focus grouping. And, and then of course, you know, my, my favorite focus groups are my friends, my family, and I'll show them the video and, and clients, you know I mean? Like I'll get my, you know, like, like, look, you know, cause it's so grainy. I'm not betraying any confidences, but I would, I was constantly running this fact scenario, the video, cause it's all on video. Yeah. And then I would, I would play around with different ways of describing what happened and I would see how people react to it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm glad that you, you that you talked about that and especially how things shift, because I do think that happens a lot in cases where, you know, you're focused on, um, you know, you're focused on just making sure the complaint has all the elements and it's going to, you know, survive a motion to dismiss. And then you're just focused on figuring out what actually happened in discovery. And then, you know, so much of that until you get past like the dispositive motions phase. I know there are people who focus group it early, but there's so many other things that you're trying to do at the same time um, in that earlier phase of the case versus then after sort of the dispositive motions or, you know, it all it kind of flips, you know, and then and then you're focused and your audience and everything, um, it just really changes, you know, because, it, you know, when you're, when you're working up a case, you're just thinking a lot of different things. And when I started practicing, especially that was, I, I, I had obviously never done that. I had never really gone all the way to trial. And so I had always been thinking about the legal side of things, the motiony side of things and not how after that, how things switch and you have to get reactions from people. So it's two different worlds. So I come from a background of, of really academic, heavy um, uh, family, like all professors and, and, and what have you. And the motions practice and the legal issues are, is a whole separate part of the brain. You know, the focus and the attention and, and going down those rabbit holes of ferreting out the legal issues. And then it's like the other side of the brain, the creative kind of curiosity and visualizing and pictures is is another skill. Mm-hmm. I am I am wholly deficient in that first part, which is kind of black letter law and legal briefing and analysis. But where I can do things, you know, that that I'm proud of is connecting at an emotional level of of storytelling and from the heart and making really complicated things really simple. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that like when you hear it, you're like, duh. And and so one of the things, you know, if you're going to go try a case, I, I think that you would really like what are my strengths and what are my weaknesses? And how can I put people around me that just build me up and and, and compliment where I'm deficient? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So, so uh, Eric, I wanted to ask you, you know, when you're talking about the focus groups and putting the case together, they, I, I, I do want to point out that from the defense standpoint, they had, uh, you know, what I think they thought were good defenses and, and some things that you might have to overcome. Um, like if I was there some claim by them that he might have been intoxicated, that your client might have been under the influence of something at the time? Yeah, they, the huge claim on that, Okay, which, which was, first of all, let's be very clear. They lied about that. But my okay. client, they, they tried to say that he was on opiates and 
and they tried to make a huge thing about his drug addiction and alcohol use. And, and I, I, I honestly, like before the trial started, I was thinking I'm going to have these experts prosecuted for perjury. Right. Yeah. No, I'm dead serious. You know, I was, I wanted to bring their experts to the attention of the court because what they're doing was so wrong and dishonest. And, 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 and unfortunately we see it so often, you know, like the things that people will do for money. Yeah. And that's what's so ironic about this case. Cause Will, he's not like, he just wanted to be treated fairly. He just yeah. wanted to be like, give me a little bit of respect and maybe say you're sorry, you know? And, and these guys, all they wanted to do was avoid any kind of accountability. And they were willing, the lengths that they went to, to do that are shocking. Yeah. It, it was absolutely shocking. And so I don't know, you know, like when you're trying to run from the truth, you know, like when you go to such lengths to run from the truth, I don't know at what point that makes sense to someone. Like, where did, we, where did we, when did we lose this moral compass of just like, Hey, this is what happened. And I can, I, I got to stand by my actions. And I think that's ties into some of the problems we're dealing with. Yeah. Inside, well, you know, I, I guess what I'm wondering is did any of the defenses that you saw, did any of that gain traction with the focus groups and then, you know, cause you to, you know, great. do something different at trial. Great uh, question. Great, great question. You know, we breed life into the other side's cases when we legitimize it by responding to it. Right. And I'll have to say, had I not focused group the living daylights out of this case, I would have spent a lot of time defending those claims and being defensive. But what I learned from the focus groups is that people we're not going to blame my client because he's a normal person. He might have some flaws. And, and so instead I owned it. I embraced it. I was like, this is who my guy is. Yeah. He's, you know, I think in closing argument, I'm like, he's not someone that they would respect, you know, but this is who he is. Cause they, they spent such an inordinate amount of time attacking my client that the jurors questions were like, they got to the point where I don't know if I was reading the tea leaves, I felt like the jurors were like, like, why are you guys making a big deal out of this? Move on. Yeah. Wait, so when you say the jurors questions, do, do the jury, does the jury get to ask questions to the yeah. witnesses in, in Washington? Okay. What kind of questions were you hearing? Well, like the one I'm thinking of that I remember it, it was something to the effect of, you know, the supposed drinking and drug problem, is it hard alcohol or is it beer? You know? Right. And the, you know, the, it was after their expert had just gone on and, and by the way, they were violating, you, you know, they intentionally violate motions eliminate, which, you know, a motion eliminate is a court ruling, right? This stuff has nothing to do with the trial. It doesn't do, it doesn't go to my client's damages. It doesn't go to whether they're responsible or not. It all, the only purpose of it is to infuriate or inflame the passion and prejudice. And this defense lawyer and I knew they were going to do it. I'm not, you know, I'm used to seeing it, but they went so far over the top of bringing in stuff that the court had ruled was not going to come in because they just wanted to hate, have the jury hate my client. And what happened was that the, what I knew was going to happen in the focus groups is that people don't care. Right. We all have flaws. 
Well, and especially if you're if if you're going to put so much blame on the victim, on Mr. Tisdale, at the same time not accepting responsibility for the multiple things that they didn't do right, which you you did a great job of sort of walking the jury through, you know, all here, you know, that they they have programs set up or are supposed to for you know um, robbery deterrence and um, and and that they basically didn't give any training to their. Uh, clerk and to the to the point. One thing that we didn't mention was that after um, you know the clerk tells your client Mr. Tisdale to call nine one one, and Mr. Tisdale steps out of the store. The clerk locked him out of the store, which to me is like you know, hey buddy, you're on your own now. Um, you know, we're not going to we're not going to help protect you at all. You know, the, this case needed closure for the clerk as well because he, you know, you ever hit a dog or a, a bird and you're driving and your heart just you know, like, oh, because yeah. you, you had a hand and fate that was really kind of yucky, you know. And so this clerk, he's a good guy. He was doing the best he could, but he's a he was a defendant, you know, like his actions were were holding the company. But you know what? This guy didn't know any better and he was put in a dangerous spot. And because he didn't have the training, because the store was dangerous, he did what he needed to do to survive. And he didn't know that his actions made it dangerous, not just for him, the clerk, but he imperiled my client. And now that guy, that poor guy has to live with that every day for the rest of his life. And you're right. When, when my guy's on the phone, he's sticking his head out, like what's going on. And he steps out, the clerk locked him outside in the dark with a deadly, you know, you know criminal with a deadly weapon and, and didn't think twice about it. And his intention for telling my guy to call 911 was to scare, was to make my guy a threat to the robber. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. You know? And so that's why training matters. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to touch on, I, you know, you had sent us the transcripts from the trial and I didn't get to read all of them. Um, I, but I was, you know, I was looking for your opening and your close, but when I opened one of the earlier, one of the first transcripts chronologically, um, it was this, it was a conversation with the court that you and opposing counsel were having before, um, openings had started. And it looked like you all had maybe had an agreement to exchange PowerPoints or something like that, but you got theirs like, super late. It had all this stuff in it that hadn't or was, had been ruled out, had been ruled out yeah. or um, wasn't yeah. ever going to get into evidence. And, yeah. you know, reading it, you know, we've all sort of been there in terms of of that sort of last minute trial stuff. But this certainly seemed to be a lot. It seemed to be more important because um, or at least potentially more important because of, of the, the logistics of a COVID trial and, 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 and what's happening with the PowerPoint. But can you just talk a little bit about, especially for newer lawyers, what went down and, and just how you kind of kept your cool and approached it? Yeah, I moved for a mistrial two or three times in this trial, and that was one of them because it was so dirty. It was so intentional by the defense lawyers and this was a three week trial. It took me two and a half days to put my case on. OK, I did. I did my whole case in two and a half days. And that's something we should talk about of brevity yeah. get to the point. You know, how do you do that? But but these but these defense lawyers. Consistently broke and violated the court rules. And and so opening PowerPoints are a big deal. And if you're going to go try a case now, you may not want them to see yours like if you're if, like for me, I'm a kind of like 
what you get is what you see. I don't play games. Mm-hmm. I try to meet people like, honestly, I give you the benefit of the doubt. We're going to be faced. We're trial lawyers. Let's just do this ethically, morally, and let's do our jobs. Yeah. You know, right is right. Wrong is wrong. If I'm wrong, I can live with it. Well, a lot of people engage in gamesmanship and that was obviously their tactic. And so the judge ordered these people to give me their PowerPoint well in advance. And I got it at like, like midnight the night before, like at some crazy hour. And I just assumed they weren't going to do a PowerPoint, but they, you know, they push the limits and they know that they can probably get away with it. And so I bring, so I bring it to the court's attention, you know, I'm like, here's the PowerPoint. And of course the PowerPoint was, I don't even know what to call it other than like an (laughs) insult to the rules of evidence, an attack on the court's rulings, a blatant and shameless attempt to smear my client and make them look like a horrible person. Like the stuff they put in the PowerPoint was geared for one purpose to, to inflame the jury, to hate my client, to make him look like a horrible person. And so I bring it to the court's attention. Like, here we are again, you know, the umpteenth, by the way, I've been practicing law for 25 years and I've never brought a motion for sanctions until this trial because of things like this. And so I bring it to the court's attention, move for a mistrial, it's denied. And they go and they show these slides that, that talk about all the things that they were not allowed to talk about, like sexuality, drug use, uh, arrests, you know, like his income, all the things that I had moved to keep out because it wasn't worth trying to explain it or talk about it because they were going to misuse it. Mm-hmm. And they just left it up there. And so I, so to answer your question, you know, what do you do when another lawyer is, is playing games and trying to throw you off your, your, your center? I'm glad that I have a lot of experience. I'm glad that I had the faith in the jury. I'm glad that I had the faith in myself and that I had focus grouped it. And you have to be able to compartmentalize, you know, in life, sometimes we're really good at it, almost too good at compartmentalizing, Mm -hmm. you know, like we can be dealing with crisis after crisis and just simply not deal with it because we'll put it in a box, put it aside and then never, ever deal with it, you know? Um, (laughs) But but in trial, you have to remember it's a shared experience. And by that, I mean, the jury's experience is not yours. And so I so I had I had to deal with this and get up and give an opening statement. As soon as the court rules on this stuff. And I'm furious, I'm outraged, mm-hmm. I'm upset. Right. But yeah. that's not the ju- I, you, you got to remember that that's not the jury's experience. And so when you bring that energy, so they do that so that you look ugly with the jury, because how do you recover from that? Right. You know what I mean? So if you bring that energy to a jury and I give my opening statement and I'm upset and my high, my pressure, my blood pressure is high and my chi is like, I'm up in the throat and I'm like, <laughs> so I, I, I just, I, I, I'm aware, I'm spatially aware of the emotional temperature of the room. What's the atmosphere? And I don't want to change that. Mm-hmm. I want to be below it. And so I got to meet people where they are. Mm-hmm. And that's tough to do. Like intellectually, I think you guys know what I'm talking about. But practically, when you're in that moment and you have to control your your emotions, which mm-hmm. is kind of like the meaning of life. And sometimes we're not on top of them and they explode. 
you're in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's tough. And that's also the kind of thing that like, okay, I can cool down from it, but I need more than five minutes, like, <laughs> you know? And for you, you had to immediately, I mean, the judge was like, I'm bringing the jury out. Like, yeah. 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 We went, we went from this gamesmanship trickery and frankly, I believe unethical. I believe it was unethical done for one purpose to throw me off guard and they, and they pushed the trial out. I had an expert from your neck of the water, the East coast out there all week, just waiting, you know, like a brain doctor, you're talking yeah. about, you know, like $50,000 type right. stuff just sitting yeah. there and, and the delays that were, that were obviously thrown out there to throw me off on my trial schedule and, and, and the choreographing of witnesses, mm-hmm. right. I'm dealing with all of that at once and it was gamesmanship so they could hide from the truth. Yeah. And yeah. so part of me kind of relished in it because I knew that, that I was prepared. I knew what I needed to do and that, that, that that's the best that they had. I knew that they were in trouble. So Yvonne, the internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic. And it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world, but if nobody knows about them, then they're not gonna come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like Digital Law Marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization. It's really important that your firm's site is is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website. And you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell them, tell them we sent you. I wanted to make sure, Eric, that we gave you a chance. You mentioned how you had planned out this trial to to do it quickly, to try your your case quickly. Um, And I'm I'm hoping you can give some practice pointers um, to our listeners on that, how you do that. So as a plaintiff's lawyer, we walk a really fine line and I shaved off a lot of witnesses because I was like, I just want to get out of my case intact and I don't want to overtry a case. And so I gave a 20 minute opening statement on a case that is supremely complicated And I guess we all know that in this day and age, attention spans are short. 
there's divided attention going on. And we have to recognize that as a lawyer, like we have to go out there and entertain. We have to go out there and, and connect with people at a level where the attention is sinking in. And if you can't recognize that you droning on and on and on about things that don't matter to the listener is counterproductive to your case, I don't think I need to say much more than that. The hard part, the hard part about this is that we as lawyers are betrayed by our intelligence and the information that we have. And so we feel like, you know, we and we carry a responsibility that is that is crippling. You, you know, like when you're responsible mm-hmm. for someone's life and if we don't do a good job, you know, they could be out on the streets and, and, yeah. and suffer and not or die in prison. That's hard to do. And so we put so much pressure on ourselves and we try so hard that I got to get this out. And what we have to do instead, I think, is be able to, to, to yes, we got to do the lawyer stuff. But at the end of it all, there's a there's a message and there's a truth and you have to identify it so that it's coming from the heart. And and I don't know how to teach that or explain it other, yeah. than, other than it takes a lot of work yeah. and preparation and practice, 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 practice. It, it is something that is so hard to master because, you know, we put so much time and effort into these cases and for our clients that you think you want to make sure that you, you know, tell this, the whole story, give them every piece of evidence that's going to support it. But it, but it's so important. Do you have a certain methodology that you go about to, um, you know, narrow down your evidence? Like, you know, one, you know, one witness per point or two witnesses yeah. per point or something like yeah. that? Great question. You know, I I believe in momentum and kind of like an energy. And I love cross-examination. I was a criminal defense lawyer for, and I still am. It's my passion. Actually. I love criminal law. I, uh, I I know how to cross-examine and I know how to tell a story through cross-examination. Right. And so there's a price that we pay when we put a witness on, there's a great book. I think it's called sponsorship theory or how to win trials. And the bottom line is any lawyer who puts a witness on the stand is is being docked credibility points because, of, of course, that person's going to advance your case. So what happens if you can use the other side's witness to prove your case? Yeah. And so I'll, I'll withhold like massive chunks of evidence so that I'm continually ending the day. By the way, like how do you end a day in trial? Like like that's a whole nother like hour we could talk about. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm in my mind, I'm thinking, how can I build momentum choreographing witnesses and then using their witnesses to not just build momentum, but like go over the top with it so that they are destroyed. I mean, just yeah. absolutely destroyed. And so my method of do building that energy, I think is again, going back to preparation and focus grouping and realizing what matters to the common person, like the yeah. juror. Like you're a sample jury, what matters to them? Because we are so in love with our cases and we get blinded and we have these blind spots of what matters and what doesn't matter. And that's the that's like the kiss of death. Like when we don't know what really is important because everything is. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I I, I do want to hear your thoughts on how you start and end each day of trial, because I do. I, I you know, I think when lawyers are putting together their order of proof or, you know, how they're going to do this. I mean, how you how you start off the day and then how you end the day are just yeah. so important because, you know, it's the first thing the jury hears when they're coming back in. And then the last thing they hear before they go home and spend time with their family. So what tell, 
I mean, um, tell us some of your thoughts on that. Well, first of all, on a disputed liability case, I think the most important thing is you got to deal with liability. But but back up a little bit. So we give opening statements. The defense lawyer gives their opening statement, and then then we get up and put on the first witness. First witness. I think you should know your opponent's case so well that you know their opening statement. And what's the one witness that you can put up right away that debunks everything they said? So I'll, I'll put some thought into that. Yeah. And so in this case, it was the clerk. Yeah. You know, the clerk, the clerk, these guys are saying, well, we trained him. He did everything right. And I deposed the clerk. I knew what he was going to say. So let's get him up on the stand. Let's see what he says. And he just yeah. completely undercut their whole opening statement. And then I put on the manager. And then I did my liability expert so that he had credibility. If I had gone straight with my liability, oh, yeah. expert, he's, he's a paid guy. So yeah. I used I used witnesses to build the credibility of my people. Then I went into, so then at that point I had liability. Oh, I played some corporate rep depth stuff, like unbelievable, crazy stuff that these, this corporation, man, I I hope, I hope multiple people got fired. Like, I mean that so that, Mm -hmm. so that this company is like, finally, like worried about something other than how much money they can make selling, you know, whatever they sell. And then on lay witnesses to kind of give credibility to, you no, know, I called the treating doctor first because what do they, they don't have a dog in the, they don't, they don't care. They just want to speak the truth. And then some lay witnesses. And then I, on damages, you know, this was the, the most complicated damages kind of scenario in this case was a seizure disorder, which is a, a consequence of the brain injury. So I chose to call that witness last because it was the most complicated and required a little bit of understanding of the brain and why it happened mm-hmm. so that the jury had had some basic knowledge of brain injury. So I could go into the more specific. Yeah. Did you, um, I, I wasn't sure. I saw a comment about this in your closing, but I wasn't sure. Um, I wasn't sure what to make of it. Did you, was your client there the whole time or did you, he wasn't never, there. Never showed up. Okay. Sure. Um, but you, I thought you did say you put on some of his testimony. Was that through a deposition or something? His, okay. They played his deposition. Okay. So talk about so talk about how that because that um, how you handle that how you get the jury to sort of um, feel for a guy that they're not seeing. Because I because I feel yeah. I love my client, and I, I mean I I unless you can emote and connect with the human suffering of your client. You, 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 you shouldn't get up there and try the case. Having said that, I wasn't like focusing on my client, but when I did, like, if you, if you read the opening statement, you saw, like, I, I talked for damages on maybe a minute. Right. Right. Like what, what more do you need to say when someone's so messed up like this? Right. But putting my client up to talk about, Oh, my life sucks. And I have headaches and I can't remember anything. And I just, I'm miserable nonstop. I don't see that as being particularly great evidence, you know, having his friends and his, and his employers talk about how he has changed. Oh, that's all of a sudden. Okay. But jury, we know that our human capacity to sympathize and connect and to love is kind of like lost. There's yeah. compassion fatigue and we just don't care. 
And so I'm not too worried about whether my client gets up and, mm -hmm. and, and uh, wants to talk about what they're going through. Did you prepare the jury for that during voir dire or anything? Or no, I had 20 minutes. Right. For your voir dire was 20 minutes? Yeah, I had 20 minutes to pick a jury. Well, I think that's a I think that could be a really uh cool lesson. When you only have 20 minutes, what is the main thing you focus on? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, for, for those of you who haven't tried a case, I mean right. that's what makes this extraordinary. Cause I think of jury selection when we walk as plaintiff's lawyers, when you get up in front of a group of strangers, you're not exactly a credible person. We've right. lost these trials before it started because of this misperception of what it is. And so I think of jury selection as I just want to respect you guys. I want to hear what you have to say. And, you know, if I can just model good human behavior and, and show that I value you as a person, will you just value me and give me a chance? You know, like, I think if I've done that, I'm going to be all right. Having said that, like there's core principles we have to talk about money yeah. for justice, burden of proof. Uh, here, you know, we've got some criminal that whacks my guy in the head of the baseball bat. Why should we sue a company? Right. What is that? Why, well, how can they be responsible for that? Oh, and by the way, if my client never show, you guys are going to be here for three weeks and my client never shows up, you know, how would you feel about that? And to answer your question, I never, I didn't have time to talk about it. Because I basically had time to say, hello, my name's Eric. You know, how do you feel about money and for justice? And it was done. There was no for cause. I was stuck with the first people that came in, of which half of them thought lawsuits are driven by greed and the verdicts are too high. Yeah. We didn't ask you this. Pierce County, uh, Washington, which is I think that's the, the Tacoma area, right? Is that um, what's the what's that like as far as venues go? It's really favorable. It's, okay. it's phenomenal. It is phenomenal. But here's I've been burned by alternates. And and in this case, um, you know, some of the people that I knew were just like I was never going to reach them. Got sick or couldn't stay awake and, you know, kind of it solved itself. And so, you know, more like open minded people slipped in. And the whole dynamic, so group dynamics is a fascinating thing. Yeah. And that's, you know, for another day, but you can change the dynamic of, of a group of 12 with one person. So did, did you, um, the, for Vordire, was that in person? Um, I know that the trial was in person. The jury was there. Um, was, was jury selection in person too? Yeah. The jurors had masks on. We were allowed to take our masks off when we spoke. Okay. I was just curious because we we've had a we've had some in Georgia where the trial was in person. The jury was there in person, but the jury selection was was virtual by Zoom. Um, so, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know what I would prefer, but I haven't had to do either. I wouldn't know if I would prefer the jury selection by Zoom where I could see people's faces, but maybe whatever weird is happening with their background <laughs> or my see them through masks. And, and I was given all sorts of suggestions my thoughts on it, like, why, why do I care? They have to deal with it. I have to deal with it. My worrying about it isn't going to change it. I'm just going to be me. And right. by the way, you know, someone's eyes tell a big story. Yeah. And, and if you're focusing from the heart and you're communicating to, and looking people in the eye, I mean, what, what more do you really need? And I understand the, you know, 60 face facial muscles and you can try and read what it is, but you know what? 
the truth is the truth. Either you're prepared or you're not. They have to deal with it as well. And let's just go at it. Let's just do our best job and see what happens. And so I, I didn't worry about any of that stuff. I didn't care. I think it's really interesting that you have this. Um, it seems like you have a lot of um, faith in your jury that if you are genuine and um, and honest and yourself, that you will um, get the same back. Yes. And I, I don't know if I have that. <laughs> well, think about this. You know, people are always getting in fights and they don't know why. It's because they're bringing this anger and this kind of intensity to them. And if you don't trust a group of people, because we've been, you know, how, you guys know how hard it is to get up in front of a jury and lose and we get rejected. That's past trauma. You guys, we're bringing that with us of rejection and failure. Yeah. And when we get up in front of a jury and that's our baggage that we're bringing, we're looking at this beautiful group of people and like, you guys, I don't trust you. I've been hurt too many times doing this. Well, they can pick up on that. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's, remember, that's not the share. I'm going to say it again. It's a shared experience. You're bringing that shit with you and you need to check it at the door. Yeah. These are good people who showed up for a civic duty to do a job. Yeah. You know, and they want to do a job and you got to be open to that. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Even, even the people that think lawsuits are driven by greed and frivolous. You know, because are they okay with a company that will blatantly ignore the law so they can make more money? I hope not. Right. Right. Yeah. So I wanted to ask one more question before we turn to damages, because we we do need to spend some time talking about your damages case here. But did any did either side call the assailant, Mr. Sablin? No. Okay. It, was that because, I mean, I, and the defense didn't try and call him for any reason to try and point the finger at him or put, you know blame on him somehow? No, he was never identified as a witness. And, and, you know, I, under the law, if they'd done that, I probably would have liked it, you know, another mm -hmm. example of anything they will do to avoid, right. you know, and their duty. Yeah. Well, well, let's talk about the damages and how you presented this to the jury. I mean, so as Yvonne pointed out at the beginning, I mean, your client was hit several times on the, the head, uh, in the in the face and the, on the uh, in the neck and, and on his back by a baseball bat uh, to the point where he lost consciousness and had uh, a, a fractured skull, had a subdural hematoma and then suffered uh, bleeding on his frontal lobe and um, and a uh, Tremendous damage to his right temporal lobe. Um, but at the same time, he could hold a conversation. You know, he, um, you know, if you met him, or I'm guessing if you met him, you might think that you could have a sort of regular conversation with him. So talk about, you know, when you have somebody like that and you're you're building your case for, uh, you know, a traumatic brain injury, how, how you build that up and then how you. Uh, get the jury to where they were, you know, uh, obviously awarded a, a significant, uh, very large verdict. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to add one other thing. It, tell me if I'm <laughs> wrong, but I, I think you didn't put in your medical bills and you didn't put in any lost wages. Is that right? That's and right. your medical bills were 400,000 or so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I left behind on the order of one and a half pushing 2 million in specials. And so if you're going to talk about 
the value and the meaning of human life. And we're and 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 so all right. So there's many ways you can ask for money. We all know the closing arguments. And uh, you know, a jet pilot is flying through the sky, and and the plane is going to crash. And do they stay in the plane to try and save it, even if it's a two billion dollar plane, or do they hit the eject button and get out and save their life? Or you know, the 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 Louvre is burning down, and the Mona Lisa is in there, and there's a baby <laughs> sitting next to it, right? <laughs> What do you grab? And another one could be, I mean, there's endless ways to talk about like a, the tangible fixed black letter. Here's what the value of money is. And, 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 and contrast that with the value of a human life. I, I truly do believe that our value of money is so ass backwards and nonsensical in this day and age that until we as lawyers really believe that a human life is worth as much as anything that you can put on a, as a tangible figure, then we're doing ourselves a disfavor. And I, and I view myself as a social engineer to, to be a force for like humanity, for, for the, the soul searching, like spiritual missions to make the world a better place. And if that is my belief and that's my value of, of this person's life, then why wouldn't I compare, you, you know, so my, my closing argument were, were two, was twofold. It, it was the salary of sports athletes, of how much they make a year, which is hundreds of millions of dollars. Then if that's the case, how can we not say this man's life isn't yeah. the equivalent? I mean, how is it not? I don't understand. Why, like, what's so controversial about this? Why is that hard? It's not to me. And so that's just what I happen to think. I love this guy. I think that he's suffering horribly and no one would want his life. And so they owe it to him. They took yeah. it. Now they have to pay for it. it, it and I, I think we forgot to point it out. But he, he was 31 years old when this happened. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it, he has a horrible existence, like yeah. horrible existence. His, his chances of suicide, um, early death. And his suffering, like nonstop, it, it's unspeakable. Yeah, yeah. I I found that very um, one of the things that that um, you know, in addition to to talking about you know helping helping people helping the jury think about damages, one of the things that you you mentioned that resonated with me, and I I would have to think um, resonated with the jury is you just spoke a little bit about um, this relationship with pain that he was going to have. And, yeah. and, um, I, I feel like everybody, you know, I mean, for people who are unfortunate enough to deal with chronic pain, um, you know, they get that right away. But I think even people who have just dealt with pain at one point or another, I don't know. I, th I thought that was a very mo kind of a different way to put it, but a very moving way my, um, my fiance, to talk about it. My fiance came up with that. Oh, that's great. I thought that was great. It's brilliant. It's freaking, yeah. it's, it's beautiful. It's a hundred percent original non-lawyer, a non-lawyer created the closing argument. And well, I, it's the truth. Yeah. When I liked one of the terms that you used was you called it the, I mean, you had sort of this endless loop of pain and then it was a cycle of sorry. I thought that was a, just a really good way of uh, expressing it. Yeah. Thank you. I'll, yeah. I'll yeah. yeah, it was. Yes, please do. Because I mean, it was great. And I thought it was especially good coming off of 
there was a moment when I was reading this transcript, Steve, I don't know if you thought about this, but so, so much, much of the time when we're talking about how these cases are defended, we're talking about how um, they just wouldn't own anything. They wouldn't accept yeah. anything. And if they had how much heat that would have taken out of the case. And there was a moment where I was like, well, maybe they're going to do it, you know, where he was, you know, in, I, I can't remember if it was the opening or closing, but where opposing counsel was like, nobody's disputing the injuries. <laughs> but then I was like, and then they disputed ah, every yes, part of it. Yeah. Yes, you are. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, that was, we didn't spend a lot of time talking about it, but in addition to the defenses of, of sort of blaming Mr. Tisdale for what he did and, and blaming, you know, sort of the criminal, um, you know, even though they weren't, I guess, under the law, really supposed to do it, talking about sort of it being like an intervening cause. But a lot of the other things they did was basically say his his seizures were bad because he wasn't taking his medication and saying or, or seeing his doctors. Yeah, they, right. blame they wanted yeah. to blame the victim. And right. That's like, haven't we done this before? Yeah. Right. Um, I, you know what? One thing I was really interested in talking about is they, they seem to make a big point of the fact that he was a uh, marijuana user. And uh, I mean, first of all, we know that if you suffer from pain, uh, marijuana can be a, a, a very medicinal. But the other thing I'm wondering about is, I mean, you're in Washington state. This isn't Georgia uh, where marijuana is legal. Um, so I'm wondering, how does that go over with the jury? The fact that somebody is a marijuana user? Uh, you'd have to ask the defense lawyer what, right. because I, again, I focus group this stuff to see, you know, how stuff resonated and and blaming a guy. By the way, it's FDA approved for treatment of seizures. Right. You didn't want to attack a guy because he smokes weed. The, the funny thing about that, Ivana, is the the one use you can use uh, 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 THC in Georgia for is seizures. Oh, really? So, I mean, so it's the it's the one is the one loophole we have here. I, look, you know. I, I think that, uh, you, you know, I mean, like as much games as as the defense lawyers tried to play to throw me off, I'm very grateful for their trial strategy. Yeah. And yeah. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Like, thank you, guys. You put me through hell <laughs> and you did a lot of things that I'm still scratching my head on. But like attacking this guy because he smokes weed. Yeah. Or, or that he has a hard time remembering to take his pills because you know, his head is bashed in and you just want to blame him for everything. I think there's a book like debunking nuclear verdicts or something like that. You know, that'd be a good, good book to. Yeah. 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 No, I, I mean, yeah. I, I, I can, uh, there, there's a lawyer here in Savannah, uh, who's a defense lawyer and he was the master of keeping verdicts down. And the reason why is because he would just come in, accept responsibility and then just say that he just needed the jury's help in determining what the correct value is, you know? And, and I mean, but would accept everything else and was so had such a good way with the jury and he, he, he would get hit with verdicts, but he never got hit with what I would call, you know, really huge, significant verdicts. Were you able to talk to the jury um, after this case? Yeah, I did. Did they have anything that, you know, kind of to say that was, you know, whether it was about the defense strategy or just in general, that was that was different or additional to what you had learned from the focus groups? Yeah, I really I. You know, frankly, I don't really remember too much about that because, you know, when the verdict came in, it was it, I just, you know, my reaction was this was a group of people that gutted it out in a couple of days. We were in the mid 80s. 
you know, and we even closed court one day because the conditions were so. I saw the judge mention something about the heat there. Yeah. yeah my, you know, my gut impression was this was a thoughtful, thorough group of people that, you, you know, saw the difference between right and wrong, you know, lying and, and honesty. And they didn't they didn't buy into. Right. The 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 portrayal of my client and how great and, and honorable this business is and how they've done everything right. And so then they had a credibility issue. You know what I mean? Like, so that, that really is what it comes down to is like credibility. Mm-hmm. And if the jury has to make a choice and they're given two radically opposite interpretations of the evidence, the law and the damages, and they view one lawyer is credible and another lawyer is not credible. They have to, they have to decide. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's what happened, but I, I don't know that for sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's credibility is such an important uh, point. It, and um, it, it, it's the most important thing at trial, in my opinion. It is. It, it's your word and your bond. And and that's where it just gets hard. We were talking about it earlier where we might be the most credible person in the world, but we have a hard time breaking through, you know, this front we want to put up or these thoughts that we have. And so it's hard to get out our truth because intellectually we're struggling with what we have to do next, instead of being present with the jury of right mm-hmm. here, right now, this is the, this is the message. Yeah. 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 Um, I want to make sure that we ask just because, um, you know, there's only if so many of these, hopefully that will happen, given that this was a case that you tried during COVID, um, you know, what kinds of, you know, you were you were able to have an in-person jury. Were there any sort of um, COVID related issues that you had once everything got going or did you? I It was kind of OK. I noticed that you all were sounded like everybody was in person, but then you were basically streaming the trial to to allow for public access instead. Is that what was going yeah, on? That's right. OK, because I, I, I saw <laughs> it seemed like you did, you obviously dealt with it well, but I think like five minutes into your opening, you had to stop because there were tech issues with that. But then did everything go pretty smoothly after that? Yeah, you know, so back up. So the Friday before trial starts, we come to do our tour and we want to use our technology and we have all this evidence loaded up and it's not compatible. And so our whole trial prep everything from key documents, you know, if you use trial pad yeah. and then our video choreographed, they go well with my opening. We lost all of that and had to just do it with an Elmo. And, and because we had to loop it through, through their zoom yeah. portal. Right. And we weren't allowed to, I wanted to visit early. So that's a good practice pointer. You know, one, bring motions and lemonade as soon as you can. And two, go do a tour as soon as you can and test your technology I tried to do that, but it just wasn't going to happen because of COVID. And I told my team, I was like, you guys, we need to have three different options to try this case because if it's bad and it's going to happen, it's going to. And I have never done a PowerPoint presentation and I've, I'm just old school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I had probably close to 20 medical illustrations and a video reenactment and I used one of them. You know, wow. and you know how expensive that stuff is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so I, in, in this case, had all of it. I used, I, I used two. I used the CT scan of the initial hospitalization and an MRI three years later that showed, you know, encephal the dead brain. And that was it. Yeah. And so you just have to be, you, you, you have to, you have to have a backup plan for if how you think it's going to go doesn't go. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah. 
and have that um, have that sort of analog old fashioned. Yeah. <laughs> if, if all else fails, be know how to try a case with an Elmo, a Sharpie, and poster board. Yeah. yeah. Yep. That's right. That's right. And a flip chart. I love my flip charts. Yeah. Me too. Wow. Um, well, Eric, this has been just a, a great discussion. Um, I'm wondering, is there anything else about the uh, Tisdale versus APRO LLC case that uh, you want to make sure our audience knows about that we haven't gotten a chance to talk about? No, I, I, I mean, I guess what I would say is I was scared to death when I sat down after the closing argument. I wanted to just break down into tears because I, you know, I thought I had lost. And it took a lot of it took a lot of me pushing aside my fears and you know my stuff that I carry so that I could be fully available for my client and to the court and above all else to this jury, you know, like we're we're simply we're simply like messengers of some some story, some truth of justice. And, and we need to care and believe in what we do. And if we don't, you know, get someone who does or, or go do something else. Yeah. Because it, it is, it is important right now. Like we matter and what we are doing matters. And if you can trust, and this is what we were talking about earlier, you know, if you can just believe that 12 good people have it within them to want to do better and make the world a better place, we're, we're, you know, we, we have that opportunity as trial lawyers. Yeah. And that's a cool thing. Absolutely. Tell what um when you say you felt you had lost the case, what uh what was driving that? Was that something you had picked up from what you thought you'd picked up from the jury, or was it just something internal? Or what 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 do you think? Yeah, I don't know. I the one is I you know, it's just I I've lost cases I should have won, and I've won cases I never dreamed I could have won. And yeah. What I've learned is like, if I feel great after a trial, I like, that's like the worst feeling in the world. And when I feel like I screwed this up, right. You know, so that's what kind of gave me hope, but the jury, their questions had to do with liability. Okay. And that yeah. freaked me out. And yeah. And I just wasn't thrilled to death with some of the stuff. It was just scary. You know, yeah. yeah. like we were talking about earlier, you get rejected, you do the best you could do. And it doesn't matter because you know, like you're stuck with a group of people that hate you or your case or the client or this concept of lawsuits. Yeah. Yeah. And it's unknown. Yeah. Yeah. It was a scary unknown. Well, uh, I mean, I mean, you did a, a fantastic job. It's, it's obvious that you come to the courtroom with a lot of, uh, with a lot of passion and a lot of uh, empathy and, and caring. And, uh, and those are all so important, um, you know, for any lawyer that's representing a client that, uh, that they show their, you know, how much they care and how much passion they have, because if the lawyer doesn't care about their client, then no jury is and no judges. Amen. Um, so, uh, so I want to, uh, uh, let me just remind everybody, we've been talking about Tisdale versus APRO LLC that was tried in June of uh, this year, 2021 in, uh, Pierce County, Washington. And it resulted in a $91 million verdict. Uh, and we have been talking to Eric Fong of Fong Law in Port Orchard, Washington. And you can look up Eric at ericfonglaw.com. Eric, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury. Have you reached a verdict?
Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.